Hello, everyone. This is Out of the Box Podcast, and I'm your host, Kingston Robertson, and I'm here with James Morgan. I'm currently the community organization organizer for an organization called Moses. That's great. Could you give us a little insight on what Moses stands for and what you guys doing for the community? Yeah, well, Moses stands for Madison Organized and Strength, Equity, and Solidarity. What we are is an organization that focuses on creating and assisting and changing legislation relative to incarceration, post-incarceration, housing, education, a number of our members who are really active in all of those areas. How was this created? Where did this come from? Where did Moses start from? Well, Moses started in 2010. A number of us, there was uh, Reverend Joe L. Winger out of Mm -hmm. Milwaukee, myself, Jerome Dillard, and David Liners at the behest of a woman by the name of Carol Rubin, okay. uh, who did the necessary research and uh, building of the organization with its member congregations. We had to have 10 member congregations before we could become a part of Wisdom, which is our statewide affiliate okay. uh, under the umbrella of our national organization, which is Gamalio. And those are organizations that train individuals in community activism and community organization. Could you tell us a few things that you guys are doing right now as far as with the community and just giving that understanding of who you are? And, you know, like a lot of people hear the name. What is the behind the scenes? Like, what are you guys doing in the community, in that area that you're targeting at this moment? Well, yeah, you're you're correct. There's a lot of behind the scenes work. (laughs) What I think people will be familiar with at this particular point is approximately two to three weeks ago, the New York Times published an article about the horrific conditions in Walpon Correctional Institution and Green Bay Correctional Institution here in the state of Wisconsin, where individuals have been on what the department calls modified lockdowns or modified movement, but in actuality, they are lockdowns where individuals are in their cells for 22 to 23 hours a day, lack of access to showers, communications with their families and things of that nature. So we've protesting those conditions and seeing what we can do to get the Department of Corrections as well as the governor to address those issues that are impacting people in negative ways. And 23, you said 23 and 1, that's a long time to be locked up in in a cell and can't come out and then no showers and things of that nature. Actively right now, where are you at in creating that change? Well, again, we keep advocating for the change that's needed and necessary. And I was sharing with someone this morning, you know, the Democrats have come out with a bill to address some of those issues, to address some of those issues long term, requiring the Department of Corrections to fulfill those needs to ensure that people have the opportunity to uh, exercise, that people have the opportunity to shower, to do those things that are needed and necessary so they can maintain their human dignity while they're in that space. You know, how we determine the treatment of individuals in those spaces will determine how they come home. We want right. them to come home mentally, emotionally, and, and physically well and capable of becoming the fathers and the mothers that they are intended to be. We want them to be able to engage, re-engage in their families and their communities in healthy ways. You know, we all know those of us who have experienced incarceration because I've experienced incarceration. I was incarcerated for 24 and a half years. Yeah, we want to come home and be able to not just be welcomed. You want to come home and be accepted into a whole community, into a whole family in a way that's beneficial for everyone 
Okay, your children, your mother, your wife, your husband, your nieces, your nephews. And, you know, it is incumbent upon us, you know, to address these things. Some of us haven't been in those situations, some of us not. You know, to shine the light, okay, on these issues is very important. Yes, it is. We need to be the voice, you know, for people who have been made for all intents and purposes silent. We want this issue, we want them to be visible, and particularly in this uh, political arena where those choices and decisions are made by people who really have no understanding or concept about what those environments do to human beings. Because I also was incarcerated for seven years before, so I kind of got a great understanding of where you're coming from, what you're talking about. But to do 24 years and come out and be as strong as you are and be a part of Moses, how do you come home and get to this point? One of the key components to that is understand. I got to a point where I understood that there was a greater than in my life and started figuring out, you know, what I needed to do, number one, to survive that experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. And not lose my mind. Yeah, that's important. Okay. I was very active in that environment. I found things that I could spend my time and attention on that gave me a sense of my humanity, my dignity, my artwork. My reading, my education, you know, went to school, acquired an associate of arts degree while I was incarcerated. Began to figure out the value of communication, the value of language, you know, never really knowing if I would ever step foot outside that environment. But, you know, being there, I had to figure out how I could live my best life while I was there, how I could maintain a sense of independence and self-determination. And so acquiring that in there, I'm not going to say coming out made a piece of cake because there were still issues that I had to figure out, you know, for myself in consultation with some others who had had similar experiences I I had and who were successful after transitioning out of incarceration. What was that first step of coming home? It's it's a lot easier to be saying like what we would do while we in that area, like we're in the box and be like, man, we're going to change our life. We're going to do this different or we're not going to do this anymore. When you got home after doing so much time, what was your first steps of growth and moving forward in the community? Well, the first thing was how to conquer fear. Yeah, fear is important. How to conquer fear. That was my thinking. But then, you know, talking again with some of the individuals that I had been keeping track of, uh, other men who had gotten out and been successful in terms of staying out of prison, is engaging them in conversations that allowed me to focus on what was happening to me in those situations where I felt uncomfortable, where I felt fearful, where I felt like, you know, this is, you know, I've got to go back to all I know. That could come real fast. Oh, that could come real fast <laughs> when, when them pockets empty. Especially when everybody, know, oh, he home. Right, right, right. And, and that's all they know you for is it, like whatever, whatever, whatever it was in the past. Whatever you left them with. Yeah. Okay. And that's not just the guys in the street. That's your family, too. Indeed. You know, if you got children, all they know about you is what you left them with. And if there's been a transformation or a transition into you uh, becoming someone other than the thing that you left them with, notice the language. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. It can yeah. be challenging and it can be painful because sometimes you do have to make that decision to separate from on a permanent basis. 
in order to give yourself the opportunity to live a more quality life, a balanced life. The word transformation, you use it strongly because I didn't talk to you and I heard about like the transformational awards and the events that you guys have to, you know, in honor to those that came home with that mind that you're speaking on and baby to make change and progress you know could you give us a little more on that well the the foundation for transformation begins with the the individual or the person and the people that we honor and what we call our gala our transformation celebration it's coming up december 9th it's at the brass works on wabisa avenue here in madison wisconsin and so we have three honorees persons can go on our website mosesmadison.org and all that information is right there all you gotta do is click on the button that bucket will take you to all the information that you need to know about the transformation. And what is it again? MosesMadison.org. It'll be from 5.30 to 9. And what I want to remind people, too, about this particular celebration is that, uh, you know, part of the proceeds go to a youth culinary program. And oh. that's why we always have this event at the Brass Works, yes. Get your tickets. I believe that the uh, ticket sales end on November 22nd. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, ticket sales end November 22nd. Make sure you go get yours. Be a part of this because there's a lot to come next year. And we want to also honor those that have been working behind the scenes that have yet to be noticed. But you guys are making sure that they're noticed. Hey, come come and support Out of the Box. Always. Because <laughs> there's no standard to determine, you know, outside of the person. Mm-hmm. It's about empowering the individual to the degree that they deem necessary or not to tell us how they've transformed. Maybe in the past, I wasn't the type of individual who understood the value of my family. Now I do. That's a transformation. Okay. I never had a job. Now I possess a work ethic. That's a transformation. Okay. So it doesn't have to be, you know, oh, I came home. You know, and uh, coming home, I had 50, 50K, and then I did this and I did that. No, we're looking for those things that are meaningful in your existence, in your life, that you are willing to share, okay, uh, with the people who will come yes, yes. and celebrate with you. And sometimes those people are people who don't even know you, but are inspired by your process of transformation, by you sharing your reality. You know, and what I find fa- fascinated about it, you know, because I was one of the first recipients of this, <laughs> what I found so transformative and so eye opening was that, you know, individuals began to engage with me and having those conversations and sharing with me those times in their lives when transformation was needed right. and necessary and how they were able to accomplish those transformations to a degree that it was satisfactory, number one, for them and then for the other individuals that they're connected to. Okay. It's a process. It's like everything in life is a process. You and I were talking about, you know, children and and how there are stages of development. Man, look, I'm 64 years old, 40 years ago. I never (laughs) engaged you in that conversation. (laughs) Yeah, there was no interest. You know, there was there had never been a foundation laid for that. Yeah. So for those like coming home and like, you know, trying to like that have that same vision that they have yet found. Like, how do you guys, you know, like how they able to contact you and get in, get in tune with, with what's going on? Because I feel like what you guys are doing is important because like with me personally, coming home and being able to say that I'm not going to do what I was once doing, which was successful for me. I thought it was successful, you know, even with all the things that come with it. 
I had the mind state that it was successful when I'm making this money, everybody loving you. But when you when you don't have nothing, then, you know, you're like, you know, there's no one there. So it's like when you come home and, you know, you have such a strong transformation takes a lot. You know, like just like even with the family, because the family goes through it with you. Like, how do we come home from there and find that job or find that help? Like, where is the help? Well, number one, you've got to figure out whether or not you are coming home. Does home exist for you out here anymore? Okay, and if it doesn't, how do you develop that? That takes a level of intentionality. It takes being able to say no and have your yes and no have the same power, okay, in, the, in those spaces where, uh, you know, the no, the yes is acceptable, but then if I come and you have a specific request, will my no be just as acceptable? Okay, no, I'm not going to engage. You know, I'm, man, I'm no, man, bro, I'm not going to get high with you. You know, oh, man, you scared you. No, but that's a decision that I made that's in my best interest. Okay, thank you. No, I am no longer that. Okay. I'm not only seeking to become someone else, I am someone else and stand on that, you know, exercise that courage. Okay. To not be defined outside of who you are, but being able to define who you are from inside. That's, that's strength. That, that, that's what brings that character. Okay. That's what puts others on notice. Something. Yeah. So they're going to have to move different with you. Okay. So, you know, or even if they don't move with you, let them move without you. You you know, your purpose is to stand on your values, your principles, your beliefs, your morals. And if other people aren't accepting of that, you know, let the message be the last time you saw me, I was standing and headed in another direction. And that's transformation. It's that simple. Okay. Right. But then again, we are social creatures. So seek those environments where you're going to have those productive and positive interactions, the support for the transformation that you are in the process of instilling within yourself. Exhibit that to the best of your ability in your external person. You know, it takes a lot to have that transformation when it's so many things around you that can bring you back into what you know, which and, and I feel like, you know, with the things you guys are doing, the motivation behind being a nom- nominated from, you know, from that and like, man, you're doing your thing. You working a job or you you came out here, you're trying to change the youth life. Things like that are, you know, not seen. So like with Moses, like you guys are bringing it to the table. How do you feel about being a part of that personally? It's a gift. I, I feel honored. You know, there are some criticisms with it come along with it. And, and I'm not going to say that it all feels good, but I didn't come into the space with the intentionality of merely feeling good. I knew that it was going to require right. a certain level of sacrifice. Okay. Uh, I knew that it was going to re, you know, going to be pushed back. Okay. Uh, so coming into the space, I prepared myself for that. Okay, so, you know, it's easy to uh, talk about it. It's another thing to do it. It may sound humorous to some people, and some people may say, man, yeah, I ain't trying to hear that. But I remember sitting in prison, man, and and, and uh, I watched this movie. Uh, and this character in, <laughs> in the Batman film said, wait till they get a load of me. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that out of a sense of arrogance. 
Yeah. But I know what I know. I know what I know, but I also know what I didn't know. And that's very important. Before then. That's very important. <sighs> and when you just said it, it opened my eyes. Because okay. it's like everything I didn't know yeah. is what was more important than what I did think I Because I didn't know much. <laughs> right, 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 right. And see, we always talking about I need to learn, 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 learn. But I discovered in that environment there was a lot that I had to unlearn. Ah, I had to create that space, you know, so that my brain, my, my brain could be able to begin to function in a healthy way. I ain't going to say normal because every brain is different. <laughs> okay. But it had to be able to function in a way that would allow me to understand, you know, the impact of these things that are outside of me and the way that they impact me, that the only way for me to be able to even began to navigate them was I had to unlearn what had been taught to me. Okay. Oh man. Some of it had to be totally destroyed. Yeah, I get it. You know, my generations go back before there was even a person who looked like me, uh, say, you know, like Malcolm would say, you know, who, who, you know, the Mayflower and all of these generations understand that genealogy. What happened? Where did I come from? Who am I? Okay. You know, understanding things like the, you know, the, the migration of black people from the South trying to escape slavery and Jim Crow and where were my family and people and all of that and understanding yeah. that to give it a sense of who I am. You know, be people being tell, telling me that I'm, I can't be educated because yeah, I'm a little black boy. Crazy. Okay. And then going back and understanding that my great grandparents were educators and teachers, you know. And, and and tapping into that source of me, that curiosity, you know, why yeah. am I always with a book in my hand and reading, discovering those new things about my capacity and my power that had been stripped away from me, okay, through the culture, through the society, you know, through what I'm seeing here in a, in a lot of places around our country where our families and our kids and everything else are existing in these communities of confinement that are being built yeah. based on the language yeah, the steel and concrete shows up, but it's based on the language. And who's determining that? Who's designing the maps on whose vote matters and whose don't? You know, and so, you know, let's get back into Moses here for a minute because right. those are the things that we focus on. You know, the mapping, the gerrymandering of the maps and whose vote counts and how and why and why it's important to vote to change our situations and circumstances in these communities and in our neighborhoods. Okay, educating people. You know, understanding that that educational situation of that institution right. belongs to us and we need to hold people accountable. I to had that. just recently learned from going to a few events and, and being, you know, curious of what's really going on behind the scenes. Because like I say, behind the scenes is where most things are being done the right way. A lot of people on probation cannot vote. If you got 20 years of probation, you, your voice, you're not heard. OK, well, let me ask you a question quick. Just a quick question. While you were incarcerated, and this is my experience, I never had a single individual while I was incarcerated say, man, I want to no. get my right to vote. I mean, back. you, me personally, didn't care to vote. Huh. There you go. You know, there's a narrative in our community uh, historically that yeah, our we vote ain't, we have for this or we this one. You know, and we, and we look at the one temps right, and one. Right. But, you know, resources, resources, man. National elections is one thing. Your local elections is something totally different. That's where you get your roads repaired. That's where you get your financing for your schools, housing, all of that. 
you know. So we, we focus on education, educating people in those areas. You know, if you've got, you know, here and particularly here in Madison, you know, the people that we got making decisions right now really don't care about none of us. Okay. We, you know, they got us caught up in this language game about, you know, uh, you know, this group of people, that group of people, everybody's looking at everybody else and I'm this and I'm that. And at the end of the day, you know, they go in there and put us all in one cup of water called minorities and move on. All right. <laughs> but those resources become valuable and important. Get in your car and go on the south side of Madison or some of these areas where you don't even want to drive your car because it's all towed up. And then you go on the white uh, uh, on the west side, and the streets are real smooth right. and all that. That's voting. Right. That's representation. Okay. And, and and the part that I really truly don't get, I'm saying I don't get it, but I do because there are people in these spaces who it's all about their self interest. The population of people who are suffering. Not having the information or the understanding right, about what it I means don't, to vote. When, you know, it's not just until recently that I learned that how important our vote is for like those type of things. Because when you say vote, people think president, senator, like Republican, Democrat. No one thinking about oh yeah, well, this per this helps our roads or this helps our school system. Which you know, I feel like it's a lot of work that needs to be done in the school system these days. Everybody in prison right now. If you're in Green Bay, Wall Pond, the tax dollars that would normally go to your community to support funding schools in your area and all those things, you being in, when I was in Green Bay, I understood, and even when I was in Tennessee, that being on their voter rolls increases their financial capacity mm. to fund their schools, access to medical care and everything else. So if I'm sitting in prison and my family in Milwaukee, I'm paying Versus, for the families up yeah, there in Green the, Bay. Okay, they, they're increased tax dollars in Green Bay. And everyone ain't got a prison. But they're in the, where I they know are that for a reason. Deep. That's deep. <laughs> okay, so again, man, understanding and beginning to look at these things and looking at, number one, your value, your own personal value and your worth and what you have the capacity to do to change your situation and, trans and in transforming you, you transform your family, your children. Okay, you open the doors for them. Okay, to be able to potentially experience some of the things that we aren't experiencing right now, you know, freedom of choice, freedom of, of autonomy, to be who I am for me first. You know, and people are talking about, well, uh, everybody's welcome here. Oh, you're welcome here. We're a welcoming environment. I don't really want to be welcomed. If acceptance is the goal, then you accept me for who I am and what I bring, not just to the table. You know? Most people... When they pull up to a table, there's a chair to sit on, right? <laughs> don't just give me a spot at the table yeah, don't make and sense. I can't have a seat and be part of the decision-making process, all right? You want me to feel good. Ah, no. I, my feel good is something that is a standard within me. I'm going to feel good because I know who I am. I know the foundation for my ideas and my beliefs and my personhood. That's going to make me feel good. And you're going to get to experience that when you see me. Yo, fit. Man, this is, you know, this this is messaging. I am. You know, I don't want to go back to Jesse, the I am somebody. I ain't talking that rhetoric. I'm talking about deeply knowing who you are and what you possess. When you, before, you, before you leave out the door, when you leave out the door, you have to have that confidence because people feel when you ain't confident. 
and you know you become a target for you know grief or disappointment and stuff like that because you giving that look to the people that's in front of you versus knowing who you are and i feel like coming home from you know those places it's important that we have that confidence and work on that confidence confidence and courage man but here's here's Mm -hmm. here's one of the things to watch out for in that confidence and courage and people who don't know you will perceive it as arrogance Uh, and i've had to address that you know with audiences Okay, but that's because I had other people in the room who I was in relationship with who could say to me after the fact, you know, man, I think you came off this way with this particular audience. Okay, and being non arrogant, I took the opportunity to go back and reassess. Okay, because I definitely don't want to send the wrong message. Okay, you know, I want my message to be clear. You know, and my message is one of of humanity, okay, respect, dignity, okay, love, unconditional love. People talk about it all the time, but they don't know what that is. Boundary setting so that I know when I step into a space that I'm bringing my own safety with me. I rely on somebody else to create a space that's safe for me. (laughs) Okay, and we learn those things when we're incarcerated. You know, but I have to do it in a way that's healthy, you know, because a lot of us come home and we're hyper vigilant. Yeah, everybody, you know, like everything, everybody suspect until you figure it out. You know, everybody suspect. okay, but then figuring out how do I balance that? How do I find that so that that vigilance is a healthy one for me? That's not a distraction. In yeah, my life, easy. it's not easy because a lot of it happens to us on the subconscious level. That's, you know, and I you heard me say this before, incarceration does different things to different people. And for those who have never experienced incarceration, I don't feel as though you've escaped because yeah. guess what? Life totally. does different things to different people. <laughs> so there's a similarity there as to what degree an individual or a group of individuals decide to pay attention to it because that's another thing that's very important. It's figuring out and learning how to pay attention. Peer is important because even in in those spaces like if you have your mind, you can get a lot further in places, you know. But when that's gone, it's like, you know, you stuck in wherever you at. I believe a lot of people, like for, like when we talk about confidence, it starts up here. You know, you're like, man, I might not be able to succeed in this and this going on. And you're, not, you're questioning yourself before you even had the opportunity. Once again, James, we thank you for showing up, being a part of this. And this is Out of the Box Podcast. I'm your host, Kingston Robertson. Thank you for listening to Out of the Box Podcast, an inspiring show advocating for our current and former inmates and their families in Wisconsin. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star, here with... Ed Wall. How are you, D? So for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a director at the United Way of the 211 system. Uh, prior to that, I had a long career in government. I was uh, started in law enforcement as a uh, police officer in the city of Meriden, Connecticut, where I'm from. And uh, became a state trooper in New Hampshire. I was there for 10 years. My wife's from Wisconsin, so we moved to Wisconsin in 1999. Uh, and I joined the Department of Justice Division of Criminal Investigation. Went through the ranks there to special agent in charge. I was then asked by Governor Doyle to head state emergency management. I became the administrator in emergency management. And that eventually went back to the Division of Criminal Investigation as the administrator heading the agency. 
I was there until Governor Walker asked me to become Secretary of the Department of Corrections. I was there for three and a half years. That was a mixed bag of results um, with a a lot of uh, painful memories, but good memories also. And then I retired from state government and went on to be CEO and president of NetShield Corporation, New Hampshire, where I was asked to come in and run that company that was in trouble and get it positioned for an acquisition, which I did. Came back to Wisconsin. My wife and kids stayed here. I was flying back and forth on weekends. Then took over as the director of the housing authority in DeForest, then was asked to join United Way. First things first, you released a book. I did. It is very compelling. You are sort of a truth teller. I am. Just reading just like the first couple of chapters, I'm actually really hooked on this book. (laughs) So the book is titled Unethical. It is. Tell us a little bit about the book. The book for me was cathartic. Um, It was a chance to tell the story of what really happened during my uh, time at the Department of Corrections. The issues that arose with the juvenile correction system, uh, the fact that the governor and the attorney general, uh, A, had information about it before I even became secretary, and then once the allegations started coming out about the youth who were being abused, their position was to sweep it under the rug and make it disappear as opposed to trying to address the problem. Um, Ultimately, it led to, I resigned to go back to Uh, the Department of Justice uh, and uh, the attorney general there who was trying to put his friend into my my position that was protected by state law um, ended up terminating me. So I was fired and then went through a series of appeals, which I lost based on a technicality. uh, And I, but I was able to retire. So they didn't, they, I didn't lose my retirement. So I finally decided I'd had enough with politics and government, and I retired. That's one of the quotes that I actually have written down here that really struck me. Do more than you're asked, better than the others, and faster than expected. Let's just dive right into it. Go for it. Governor Walker signs Act 10. Yes. I was heading the Division of Criminal Investigation at the time. All hell breaks loose at the Capitol. It did, and I was angry uh, because my agents were excluded from the, the rights that were given to the state troopers and all. And I, I went right across the street to the governor's chief of staff, uh, went in and told them that, you know, this is not good. This is, you're dividing law enforcement. You're creating this, this problem that doesn't need to be made. But Walker, anybody who knew him, shouldn't have been surprised by it. Back when he was the county executive in Milwaukee, he was constantly banging heads with the teachers' unions. So for him to take... The action that he did through Act 10 didn't surprise me, but I didn't think he would go after all unions in the state, which was really, that was biting off an awful, an awful lot. So ironically, the guys that he tried to divide and conquer were the same people charged with his protection. Exactly. And including my uh, my SWAT team. So my uh, my tactical team was actually the ones who were assigned to do close protection for him. So here he had in the governor's office my entire SWAT team unit protecting him after he had just told them that they lost all their rights to bargaining and advocating for themselves through their union. So it was an uncomfortable position. Take us to the mind state of that. For me, you know, I was in a I was in a difficult position. So I work for the attorney general, who's an elected official. 
but I'm supposed to be neutral and detached. And that's the whole intention of the division of criminal investigation. You're neutral and detached from everything that goes on around you. There should be no political influence on what we do and how we do our job. The reality is there's always political influence, no matter, you know, if, if you're going to work in law enforcement, I don't care if it's in a small town or a big city or for state government, the, you're always working for a politician because that's who ultimately will end up running, whether it's a mayor, whether it's a city manager, whatever. So the politics of it was difficult. Uh, when the, when the protest started, we were, uh, we were brought in as, and I headed the, the state law enforcement response to it. And my staff, all of my agents were, uh, aside from the guys who were in their SWAT team uniforms for doing the protection of the governor, the rest were put undercover out into the crowds. Not to try and arrest anybody, but just to kind of monitor the tempo, make sure that nothing was going wrong. And it was it was a very well behaved group. We didn't really we didn't have the problems that people thought about. Yes, there were death threats on the governor. You're always going to get those, but they were trying to be anonymous or through email, et cetera. We had an entire staff that was tracking those down and going and addressing them with the people who made them. Some were arrested, um, but it was at the Capitol itself. It was relatively calm. There were a few times that were that put us on edge. I remember my office was in the, in the Department of Justice building looking out at the Capitol. And I recall looking across the street as a uh, U-Haul truck pulled up through the crowd and right up to the front steps of the Capitol on the Martin Luther King Drive side. From my experience, and you know, I ran the, the Homeland Security side of the house for Department of Justice. I ran emergency management. And I looked at that and thought, what's in that truck? Because here we had a building that looked like the U.S. Capitol with tens of thousands of people protesting in the street. And what would be a better display for a terrorist group than to detonate a large bomb there and use that for their purposes? So that was, that was a tense moment. We ended up finding the truck driver. We had all of our people in the crowd looking for him. And it was, they were delivering sound equipment for the people who were going to be speaking to the protesters. So it didn't end up being anything, but those are the kinds of things in your mindset as you look around, you worry about who and what is a target and you want to protect the protesters. You want to protect the Capitol. You want to protect the legislators. That was our job in law enforcement. Some of it got out of hand. You know, we had people breaking windows and they took over the Capitol and occupied the Capitol. I understood the you know, the angst by the department administration. Absolutely. You were directed effective. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they were nervous that the building was going to be damaged and all. And I was back and forth appearing before judges as, they, as uh, the state was making arguments for closing the Capitol down and getting everyone out. But in reality, there was some damage. The bathrooms were overflowed and things like that. But it, it was nothing particularly major. So you actually ended up working for Scott Walker. I did. <laughs> After that, right? <laughs> yeah, re reluctantly. Actually, when he first came in, I was asked if what I thought about the Department of Corrections. And the Department of Division of Criminal Investigation was responsible for doing all the background investigations on the governor's appointees. So I had 30 agents, basically, just doing that. So they would send over a list of people they were looking at for cabinet appointments and administrator appointments. My agents would do the backgrounds investigations, and then they, I would go down and report the findings to the chief of staff. That's when they asked me if I you know, was interested in corrections, and I said no. I was the administrative division of criminal investigation, which is a 
permanent position, a permanent civil service position at an administrative level. There's only a couple of those in all state government. So it was supposed to be not politically affected. And if you left the position while you were on probation, which was the first two years, then they could, you didn't have restoration rights back to the position. So they, they mentioned it again months later. I said, sorry, I'm still on probation. And then lo and behold, when my probation was up, which was uh, roughly a year after they first talked to me, they were back at my office three days after my probation was up and said, we need you. We've got problems over there. The problems were self-inflicted uh, because of Act 10. They affected you know, the largest group of uniformed officers in the state. Um, and oh, so that went to the COs also? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So they all lost their bargaining rights. So you know, the Department of Corrections, the, the largest state agency with the largest budget, $2.65 billion and 10,600 employees. And here for 5,500 uniformed officers, you took away their bargaining rights. And the, the Corrections Officers Union was very powerful. They threw a lot of weight around. Marty Beal was the, the Ask Me director at the time. Marty could be cantankerous. Uh, I dealt with Marty many times. I came out of the union side. I was on the executive board of the Wisconsin Professional Employees Council. So I was familiar and somewhat sympathetic to the unions because I was in a union for a long time. Well, you uh, got 30 plus years in law enforcement. Right. Right. I had been in unions my entire career. Uh, once you go to management, though, you're out of unions. So when I got promoted to special agent in charge, I was out of the union at that point. So now you're in the, the hot seat, the big seat. I was. What was the first thing on the agenda? When I became secretary? What was, yeah. What's the biggest fire that they wanted you to put out? Well, I wish they had told me about the juvenile corrections issue because they'd already known, but they didn't. Uh, They told me when I came in, the biggest thing I had to worry about immediately was elderly inmates. The fact that we had a a growing population of elderly inmates. Of course, the reason we had that growing population was because Walker wrote the law for truth and sentencing. So there was no more pressure release valve for the Department of Corrections where it used to be you did a certain percentage of your time and then if you were good behavior, that was the incentive to behave while you're in prison. And the law took that away. Suddenly, our prison population starts to explode. And when I was there, we were well above our maximum amount of prisoners. We had hundreds of prisoners in the, in the county jails uh, just because we didn't have the room for them. So People sleeping on the floor. Yep in what we called boats. They were, you know, kind of a foam rubber boat that they would sleep in on the floor. And that's in my mind, that's, that's not good. You, you just can't keep people, you know, living like that in relative, in very small quarters for the most part. So, you know, geriatric inmates was told that this is something you have to deal with. And it, and it was won. true. And it was true. Cause I went and visited you know, I visited every institution of the state relatively quickly. I heard a rumor that you actually spent the night in the hole. No, okay. no, I did not do that. That was Rick Ramish. Okay, that's Rick. Okay, yeah. no, I did not. I um, I thought about that, um, but at the same time, what bothered me was the way Rick did it. Is he went in kind of disguised, so even the staff didn't know who he was. I didn't want to have staff thinking that I was trying to do something, you know. To, to get over on them. I wanted to come in and, you know, you come into those positions you know, kind of idealistic. You look at it and say, okay, there's problems here. I'm going to try and affect them. 
you either have people like me that are, you know, have been in public service and government service their whole lives who come in, look at a problem and want to find a solution. Or you have political appointees who are friends of a politician that will come in and try and um, affect the change that the political appointing person wants. I wasn't that person. So I came out of law enforcement. I think Walker expected that as a cop, I would want to really be tough tough on people, lock them all up. And and admittedly, as a cop, you know, you dealt with people, you went through all the trouble, the case, the investigation, you knew the effects of the crime. And you, once you put people in prison, you didn't want to deal with it anymore. But once you're in the secretary of corrections role, it takes about three weeks before you realize that your challenge isn't building more prisons because prisons and, and crime are not necessarily a um, warehousing issue, which is how Walker looked at it. It's a social issue. And once you start to understand that and once you see what the effects are in the reincarceration rate, which is recidivism, um, the, the problem really becomes quickly, what are we going to do to create a better product? Because if you go through the prison system and you're released to go back out and you don't have skills, you don't have your driver's license, you don't have a way to earn money, you're going to go right back to what you were doing before because Absolutely. you have no option. And my position was that we needed to do more to get job skills in these folks' hands so they could go out and earn an honest living and be a productive member of society. That wasn't the Walker administration's position. They, you know, I had spent uh, well over a million dollars in buying the portable labs that they use now that, for teaching people to do CNC machinery. And we moved those around the state to different prisons and the inmates could sign up for that. They had to go through math testing and classes and they would go in and get certified through the technology system. We had a 0% recidivism rate with those inmates. Because wow, so that should have told you something right there, right? Told me a lot. And, and I didn't, I always figured that it would work out. I mean, they were walking out of prison into 40 and $50 an hour jobs and Nobody wants to go to prison when they can work for that much money. Hey, I mean, you think about, like, that's life-changing money to a person that's working for cents sure on the dollar, right? So so you come out, and now you're able to feed your family. You're able, to, if, if you don't have a family, you're able to start one. Yep. <laughs> really? Look 40, at buying a house. Months. Oh, yeah. So it was it was a win-win, although the Walker people didn't look at it that way. They looked at it as you're spending money to teach, to give these guys skills and the people who have been law abiding citizens are getting beat out of these jobs because these guys are coming out. I said, no, that's not the case because people aren't applying for them. People see too much of an an emphasis on getting their four year bachelor's degree and not on the trades and not on doing this type of work. We identified this as a big weakness when we work with department of workforce development and they said there's a critical shortage right now of machine operators and CNC machine operators. So that's what we targeted at. And, and as I said, the way to attack the, the um, recidivism rate is let's work to identify what, what skills and trades areas need people, and then let's train those people to those skills. And I wanted to take Lincoln Hills, before I knew there were problems at Lincoln Hills, and convert it into a technical college for inmates. So as you're coming into your last year, um, or if you wanted to go into a longer program, uh, we want to do electrical, plumbing, 
carpentry, all those skill sets that you could come out and go right to work making making decent money. And uh, and then take the kids from Lincoln Hills and put them back down here and reopen Ethan Allen. Since the majority of the kids up there were from the Milwaukee area, um, they closed down Ethan Allen to try and save money um, several years before. And the reason they went with Lincoln Hills was because there's a there's an archaic law on the books that required a youth prison north of a latitude longitude line in Wisconsin, so that. Kids from the North Country didn't get sent down below. This was written by legislators in the north part of the state. Um, that that law never made sense to me. Ethan Allen was in decent shape before they closed it, but they did a lousy job of shutting it down. They had pipes burst. They had mold in the buildings. But it could have been remediated. And uh, I had an estimate done. would have been about $5 million to put it back online. And then we can move the kids closer to their families, which I think was part of the problem that we were seeing there. Um, and then take Lincoln Hill, since it's already set up like a school with barracks, figure, okay, you're a minimum security inmate, you're getting out within a year or so, let's get you trained so you can walk out the door and then do help with job placement. So that, that was the objective. We never got to it, but that was the objective. What are some of the things that you wish you could have done? You know... It's a long list, and it, you know you you, you kind of go through that checklist, especially after you leave and, and look back at what you did. And I was really happy that we got the mobile labs done. I was happy that we really focused on technical skill building for for the inmates. We also uh, set it up so that they get their driver's license while they were still in. So if they didn't have it, we really focused on getting GEDs and getting their high school diplomas, which was one of the biggest barriers coming out that they couldn't get jobs. So we put a lot of effort into that. I, uh, I wish we had gotten the technical college done. That you know, Tommy Thompson and I talked about this. And after I left, Tommy went, talked about it freely. I and talked openly. to Tommy about that. That was like one of the things that he said he wanted to do. Yep, yep. And uh, Great guy. I, Shout out to Tommy. Yep. I I work with Tommy very well. I always admired him. Very nice guy. Um, but I never never got that done. The other thing I really wanted to do was get the employees raises. So as you can see right now, the the numbers are out on the uh, the officer vacancies, which are huge. They were the officer vacancies have been a problem with corrections for fifteen years. Um, it became really bad after Act Ten. And the way that corrections works is the lower in seniority you are, you're the first one to get what they call jammed, forced into overtime, which ended up creating a position where these new officers would come on and within six months they They're were burnt leaving. Out. They were leaving. They're burnt out. We were losing at the time 50% of our officer class every year. So we only kept half of the people that we hired but we had a large number of vacancies. Now the maximum securities I saw in the paper the other day, 48.1% vacancy rate. And the reason it's in the paper now is the staff are getting mad because now we're getting up into the senior seniority area where even senior officers are getting jammed for overtime, where that was kind of the carrot at the end of the stick for corrections officers. If you hung in there long enough, you would get enough seniority that you wouldn't get jammed. And then you could, you could take whatever time overtime you wanted. Now it's not, and so now the people are going to the press to say this is what's happening. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of inmates that don't behave well 
within prison, but then again, they don't have an incentive to anymore with the truth in sentencing. And there was a sharp escalation in disobedience and acting out with inmates after um, truth in sentencing came in. And it's hard to tell people, come work for $15 an hour and have somebody throw urine and feces on you. So why would you do that when you go to Quick Trip? You know, and get a job with with no with benefits and twenty bucks exactly, yep. exactly. So, it 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 was a self licking ice cream cone is how I always refer to it. Is we, you know, the legislature didn't want to give money to give them a raise, yet they would complain when our overtime was roughly sixty five million a year. Um, but they figured by holding by not creating a pay raise that would attract quality staff, they could save money because they didn't have to pay benefits. They could just pay overtime, which is a very short-sighted way to look at it. So, um, you know, while I was there, uh, I saw the effect of that on people. I saw people, divorces were very high. I had five officers commit suicide while I was secretary. These are the kinds of things that you look at and say, how do we impact that? And the problem was that corrections was never treated as a professional career for people who you know, who were interested in doing law enforcement type work. And that stigma carried over to law enforcement who always looked at corrections as, oh, those guys couldn't get a job as a cop. No, that's not necessarily true. As a matter of fact, a lot of corrections guys left corrections to go become police officers. But some people have a different mindset about who they want to work with and how. And I, and I dare say corrections officers have a bigger impact on society than a police officer you know, working alone in a squad would, you know, how they treat those inmates while they're in there has a lot to do with how those inmates act once they come out. So, um, but as far as things I regret, I, I wish I had been able to get pay raises and get the, the employment situation set, but it's didn't happen. It's probably not going to happen. Um, the legislature just doesn't want to talk about corrections. They do what they have to after they're forced to the edge of the cliff. And I told the governor, I said, the problem here is nobody's going to do anything until somebody gets killed. And then when an officer gets killed or dies you know, on the job, there'll be a brief reaction where they'll throw something at it. But the truth of the matter is that's not a fix. That's a Band-Aid. So that's probably my biggest regret is that I couldn't get that part of it fixed on the officer side and on the inmate side the the tools for creating better programs were there, but the legislature didn't want to invest in them. So what would you say that the DOC is doing right these days? You know, I'm not involved with the DOC. I know the secretary, Kevin Carr, I've known Kevin for 20 plus years. I think that addressing issues as they arise is important. Lincoln Hills. But don't you think that that's a little reactive? It is, but in corrections work, you're always leaning so far forward on the reactive foot, it's hard to get you know, yourself to be proactive on other parts because the reactive side is like machine gun fire. So there's always incoming you know, with one problem or the other. So I think that from their standpoint, the juvenile corrections issue in Lincoln Hills is still going on. And I left seven years ago. And as I told Walker and his folks, when they kept basically saying, make this go away, I said, this isn't going away. You don't understand. You're not looking far enough out to understand the impacts of this. 
So for the people that don't know what the problems are when it comes to Lincoln Hills, can you kind of outline? Sure. Yeah. They, there was an issue up there where there were allegations that kids were getting hurt by officers. As soon as I heard those allegations, I went right down and briefed the governor's office and said, hey, heads up, this is what's going on. This is what I recommend. I want to bring DCI in right away, get it out of our hands, because people are going to say that we covered it up. And there were allegations that some of the officers were running fight clubs out of sight of the cameras. They were rewarding the kids with candy bars. It was horrendous. Um, It was just terrible. And it needed to be taken seriously. It needed to be thoroughly investigated, and people needed to be charged. And that's the way I looked at it. And if we had staff there that, that broke the law, they needed to be held accountable. And the initial reaction from the governor's office was, well, okay, have DCI look at it, but don't let it get out in the press and don't, don't do say it. anything. Yeah, don't do anything. Right. Yeah, okay. Keep whitewashing it. And uh, I came back, and we had recommendations on staff based on the investigation. There were people I, I wanted to terminate. And then they kind of went completely the opposite way and basically wanted to just terminate everybody. And I said, yeah, that's, that's not possible. And the Department of Administration attorneys backed me up and said, no, you just can't go in and start firing people. They have rights to, you know, to their position. They have to go through a process. There has to be an investigation. And so they reluctantly, you know, had to stand back on their back feet. And that's, I think that's when the Walker administration started to look at me as not friendly because they, they wanted somebody to argue their point and just go in and slash and burn and being a cop and being a, lifetime public servant, I said, you can't do that. There's people who've got rights here, whether you like to hear it or not, people have got rights. Just as the inmates and the kids have got rights, the officers have rights. And there were a lot of allegations flying. Some of them were baseless. Some of them were right on target. So we needed to let those investigations play out. And the problem was that when the Department of Justice got involved in my old agency, the DCI, they didn't take it serious enough, and I believe, I can't prove it, that they were getting instruction from the governor's office, slow walk this. Don't, because they had an election coming up for the governor and the attorney general in a year and a half, and they wanted to make sure that this wasn't going to be a stain. So DCI put one agent on the investigation part-time. That's a ridiculous commitment of almost no resources for a situation that could be explosive. As you read in the book, it became explosive. And uh, and there was a, a concerted effort to try and keep that information out of the press. And I think that they kind of did a good job of keeping it out of, and downplaying it. To a point, but then it took off and it was a wildfire, as I told them that it would be. And that's why I encouraged them the moment that I got the information and briefed them. I said, our response needs to be complete and it needs to be overwhelming. We cannot short stroke this. I said, we need to go in and say, we have these problems. We are putting in cameras. We are doing this. We're sending people out to be trained and we have to treat this, you know, just as aggressively as we can. The problem I didn't know about, and I didn't find out until shortly before I left was the Walker administration was warned about this by a judge two months before I came on the job. And what they were afraid of was that this information would become public and that they didn't treat it seriously three and a half years earlier when a judge warned them about it. So the first time I saw the fact that the judge had warned them was when 
I saw it in the paper. I'd never, and I called the governor's office. And at that point I was getting ready to resign anyway and said, what the heck's going on? And why am I hearing about this now? You didn't tell me anything about this when I came on. And they said, we forgot about it. Well, Ed, I really appreciate you coming to the platform. My pleasure, D. Good to see you. I'm D Star. Until next time, guys.